This is Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. And we're back. We made it in record time to part two of this conversation in Colossians. So um, hopefully our listeners heard the first part of this conversation talking about Colossians 4.1. Bill, if I could, I want to just go ahead and let's jump right in and kick it to you and the question that, that you just raised before we hit record. Yeah, so, you know, I have at home, I have a son who's about to be two and a daughter who's about to be seven. And uh, my wife and I were always communicating with each other about how to communicate with them and say what needs to be said in such a way that has the least potential of being misunderstood. And then more funny, I'm always trying to think about that when I'm communicating with Jacqueline. And she's always thinking about that when she's communicating with me. You know, we, we preach on Sundays, we have conversations all week long, and we're trying to say things to the best of our ability. And part of the, the quality of our communicating is how can I say something that will give the person who's hearing it the most chance, the best chance of not misunderstanding what I'm saying. And with that said, when we're talking to people who we know are prone to misunderstanding, whether that is just a young person or somebody who we know is struggling in a particular area, the more the, the more you realize that somebody's capable of misunderstanding, the, the more you're going to try to even be more careful, right? And so just knowing our capacity, our excellence in misunderstanding everything Jesus is ever trying to say to us regularly as a profession, this is what we do. We misunderstand him. It's just frustrating in the sense that, you know, why would, why would Paul say something or why would the Holy Spirit give us something that is so easy to misunderstand something like, you know, masters treat your slaves as unto the Lord or, or something along those lines. It's just so easy to misconstrue that as, oh, I'm allowed to be in this position of power and dominance so long as I'm nice about it. <laughs> it's just so easy to take it that way. And I'm not, I don't want to get into, I would have said it better or anything like that, but just in a, in a world where it, you know, this written word is going to be read by so many people. It's so easy to misunderstand that knowing, knowing our immaturity, knowing our sinful inclinations, knowing what we obsess over and what we all want, which is power and, and influence over others. Like that's what Jesus is trying to work out of us. Why say it in a way that is so obviously going to be misunderstood? Man, this guaranteed that we have to do another, an entirely separate episode just just to address this question. There, there's a whole array of answers. I think first, though, I think we should stop and reflect for a moment on whether or not we do want power. I, I think some of what sin does to us, the ways in which we fracture yes. us in, is that we we both want power and powerlessness. We want power, but we don't want the responsibility that comes with it. I don't think it's as simple as people want power and that's what we grasp for and cling to. 
I think our desires are more convoluted than that. And we're more fractured than that. So yes, there are times in which we are grasping for power, but it's even more likely that we refuse power when we should take it up than that we grasp for power when it's not ours. Far more, you know, when we confess our sins on Sundays, you know, it, in, in our tradition, we're asking to be forgiven for what we have done and left undone. And overwhelmingly, our sins are what we leave undone. And we leave them undone because we do not take responsibility. So I, I think it's, we're too quick to say the problem is people want power. That is a problem, but it's one of many, many problems that are entangled with even harder problems to confront. I think the far deeper problem is shirking responsibility and refusing power we should take to care for others in those moments in which, which it's required. That I think it's worth kind of noting that. Now, to your larger question, first of all, I think Colossians is clear. I don't think Paul is writing something that's easily misunderstood. I think we misunderstand it because we're fractured and because we have an enemy that's working overtime to mislead us. And because our churches, again, I'm talking about the churches in the world you and I move in, have failed us spectacularly <laughs> in, in preparing, to, preparing us to read scripture. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to exaggerate how poorly we've been discipled. I, I think on a scale of one to 10, it's off the scale. The, the, the poverty of our understanding, we, we've been failed. And, and we come to these tasks as preachers, as teachers, as parents. In, in, we are so unprepared for it. And it therefore feels like too much, but I don't, I don't think it actually, first of all, it isn't too much. Secondly, I don't think that this particular passage is one that's easy to misunderstand. It's easy for us to misunderstand, but that has a lot to do with us. It has everything to do with us, not with Paul. I do think there yep. are passages in scripture that are. That's what I thought. Really? I don't know why my Siri just started answering you, Chris, but apparently she agrees with me. She agreed with me. She agreed. That's incredible. Whatever we do, this is remember this moment with Siri. I, that's what I pretentious thought. Siri ever. She's like, yeah, obviously. Move on. <laughs> Where are just we in case talking about this? Anybody's worried about the influence of AI on theologians. Apparently, they're well versed to agree with <laughs> high level theological conversation. Uh, at least Bill's Siri is. I don't know if that's consistent for all of us, but. Yeah, my Siri's a pagan, so I wouldn't. Uh... <laughs> I don't know if that speaks to the quality of my Siri or if what you just said is so off that, like, the internet agrees with you about it. <laughs> It's no, 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 no. It can't be that. It no, can't no, be no, that. Definitely not. Definitely not. I do think there are passages that are hard to understand. You know, I mean, Peter says about Paul, right, that he writes many things that are hard to be understood. And I think there are passages in Colossians that are hard to be understood. But I think this point is not that easily misunderstood. And, and it's not that hard to understand. It's uh, shocking that we misread it as badly as we do. 
and it, it tells on us, tells on the poverty of our training and our preparation. In terms of why God would say things to us that we can so mis- easily misunderstand, I think, again, there are lots of answers to that as well. The first one being our understanding is not the aim. Hmm. Like what God is working toward is not for us to understand, but for us to become. And there is a kind of understanding that actually delays our becoming. Interesting. Like a a bad understanding or, I mean, that's still a misunderstanding, but a shallow understanding can keep us from becoming who we're meant to become. This is why Jesus never talks plainly to anyone, at least as far as the Gospels. I mean, we have no access to what the historical Jesus said, but in terms of what the Gospels do, Jesus never says anything that anybody has any idea what to do with. And the only right response is an action. You know, it's it's Jesus saying, I've not come to give bread to the dogs. And the right response is, I'll take the crumbs. Right? The, Jesus says... You know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. When the crowds start to leave, Jesus says to the disciples, are you also going to go away? The right response is, where would we go? <laughs> right. So that, those are the, the appropriate responses to Jesus. Not, a, not an, an, an ascent or a shallow grasp of the ideas, but an, a turning of the heart and of, of the life toward God. And I think scripture is designed to bring about that turning. Uh, Manuel Levinas, who's, you know, well known for his philosophy of the face in, in one of his lectures about rabbinic tradition. And he, he says that Israel's scriptures are filled with stories of cruelty, but the effect of reading those stories well is to learn a, a way of mercy, a way of gentleness. He says, so even though the scriptures seem to be a mess of cruelty, they're actually a school of kindness. So what they appear to be is not actually the way that they work on the soul. That that the, the appearance is misleading, but it's precisely by getting through that appearance into the heart of the matter that we become. And of course, what he's saying there is exactly what the church fathers are arguing over and over and over again. I mentioned Maximus last time. Like, you've got to get past the the meaning according to the flesh. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. And we have to read the scriptures in that way. Whenever we're confronted by a passage that just doesn't seem to make sense to us, or seems to make sense in a way that's troubling, that's our invitation in. That's the call deeper. And we have to be ready to go deeper. And this is, again, where we've been failed is we've been told that Scripture is authoritative precisely in the meaning it gives us without any effort on our part. Hmm. Scripture means what it means without me having to think about it. Right? That is what's killing us in, um, you know, in, on almost every front is we're approaching God and one another and the world and the, and the text of scripture as if the truest thing is the thing that requires the least effort from me. And it just ain't so. <laughs> That's just not how it works. And until that gets broken in us, 
we're going to keep butting our heads against the wall. We're, we're, we're going to keep asking for a stone instead of bread. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know if that was, what does Siri think? Does she, is she saying thank you too? <laughs> she agrees. Okay. Okay. Her word for you is yes and amen. <laughs> oh gosh. I mean, I'm just struck uh, by how significant a point that is, Chris, for us, particularly, particularly in the sort of traditions that we move in. That you know, I I allude to that that fantastic line. Uh, you know, you you might you know go to university and study all these texts, but I just read it and understand it. You know, that, that <laughs> so sort of, that sort of, you response. interpret the Bible. I just read it. That's the line. That's you the interpret line. the Bible. I just read it. And, and, and how deeply rooted that idea is in, in several traditions, in, in particularly in, in sort of recent Western history uh, that, and, and that rejection, I mean, I said it almost spiritual level rejection of any idea that requires pondering, sitting with, looking at abstractly. I mean, so, I mean, such a such a. I mean, I'm really just against a longer version of yes and amen. But, but I think that's something that I wouldn't want to ever get lost because I think that in itself is a whole podcast if you ever wanted it to be. Hmm. Hmm. Honestly, Bill, does that just deepen the annoyance, or does that do, does that bring a bit of relief? Or do, do you does it feel? I found it like funny. Room to breathe. It doesn't. It doesn't deepen the annoyance. I found it funny when I asked the question, and you were like, "Well, you know, we under we misunderstand it," and I'm like, "Yes, that's that's why I asked the question. Like knowing that would happen, but I do I do agree. Like it, it, I guess it's circular in a way where yes, we gravitate towards the readings of scripture that are the easiest for us to do without applying ourselves. I mean, we know that that's true. Something so volatile and so dangerous as that being said to people who the spirit knew would be that way is. Yeah. 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 But the thing is everything, this is another level of that same conversation. Every text has that ambiguity built into it because of the way language works and because of the way sin affects our, our hearing and giving and receiving of language. So let's, let's take another example, like Jesus saying, render to Caesar, what is Caesar's and to God, what is God's or Jesus saying, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Yep. These, these texts are equally dangerous and underwrite the exact same, especially the render to Caesar text is, is used to underwrite all kinds of eels. Yeah. And we assume that that is plainly what, you know, when Jesus says render to Caesar, he means there are things that are secular that have to do with the way of the world. And Jesus just doesn't care much about that. I, I was in a conversation yesterday about, in the aftermath of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement, there were quite a few demonstrations here in our town, Cleveland, Tennessee, and there's a a statue of a Confederate soldier right downtown, um, erected by 
the Daughters of the Confederacy. It's true all over the South, not only the South, but also the South. And this man who was sharing a story of having been there and talking to people kind of on both sides of the, the demonstrations and protests and all that. And this idea that he made, he had raised the question at some point to some of the pro Confederacy or pro monument demonstrators, like what would Jesus say about this? And at least one of the answers he got was this just, Jesus wouldn't care. Like this is about Caesar. It's not about Jesus. Mm. Like this is, this is about worldly secular matters not about the soul, not about the heart, not about heaven and salvation. So that passage we is just as easily used as masters obey your slaves and for the same reason. Sure. And there so there's nothing God could say that we sinfully couldn't twist into confirming what we want to confirm. You know? So then that way there's nothing that spirit can do with with our stubbornness. No matter what we do, that, that being said, what the spirit does do is use our sins against themselves. So when we presume too quickly, the spirit gives us texts that slow us down, mm-hmm. that force us to, to slow down and grapple in hopes that we will then go back to texts we thought we knew and read them more carefully. So it's it's kind of like, let me show you, uh, you're troubled by this text, and you should be, but you're not troubled by this text as you're reading it, and you should be. So learn to be troubled here so you can be troubled there. That's good. Yeah. I think that's that's one of the ways in which the Spirit is gifting us difficulties, like putting, you know, it's Balaam. It's narrowing the wall and eventually standing in our way with a sword drawn to say, don't keep going down this path. And I think there are passages of scripture. There are different passages for, for each of us, I'm sure eventually, but there are passages of scripture that are kind of blocked ways. They're the spirit impeding our interpretation. So we will stop assuming so much. So we're reading this, you know, obviously through right now our, American history lens, so to speak. What 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 did the early church fathers wrestle with uh, with these texts? Are they alarming to them? Like they're alarming to us? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you get, I mean, they're more alarming to them than they are to us. Uh, although, uh, probably for different reasons at times. There, there's a much keener sense of, I mean, because the ancient world's a different world, right? So you have not only master slave, but you have master slave and rich poor pronounced in ways that we it's hard for us to appreciate right so what you'll get say in the in chrysostom or basil or gregory and i want to reference gregory of nissa specifically on slavery what you get is a a keen concern for the poor and and therefore also for slaves in in that way it's it's not all often rooted in at least it doesn't seem to me to be rooted in a sense of there's no, no democratic idealism at play right but there is a sense of the the 
Christ is the poor and the poor are Christ. And what you do to the poor, and the slaves are all poor, is what you do to Jesus. So there is, there's a deeply mystical sense of responsibility to the poor and the face of the poor man as the face of God that is almost totally lost on us. Like it's almost impossible for us to appreciate that. Mm. And not to, it, when we read it, I think we read those passages as hyperbole. Like we, it's hard for us to even stomach what they're saying, but there are a few Gregory of Nyssa is the, mo, is the best example that I know who will come out and call slavery itself an evil. Uh, let, let me read this passage. This is from Gregory's, fourth homily on Ecclesiastes. So Gregory of Nyssa is preaching through Ecclesiastes. This is the fourth homily. He's talking about chapter two in Ecclesiastes. And I, I won't read the entire sermon, but he's commenting specifically on the line, I got me slaves and slave girls and homebred slaves were born to me. So that's the line and that Gregory is preaching from. Do you notice the enormity of this boast? This kind of language is raised up as a challenge to God. For we hear from prophecy that all things are the slaves of the power that transcends all. That's his um, rendering of Psalm 119, 18. So when someone turns the property of God into his own property and arrogates dominion to his own kind, so as to think himself the owner of men and women, what is he doing but overstepping his own nature through pride, regarding himself as something different from his subordinates? So like he starts with this idea, as you can hear, that to even claim to be a master is to usurp God's place. And what I love about it is that he's not starting with a mistreatment of the poor or a mistreatment of slaves. To even be a master at all is sin irrespective of how you treat your slaves. So you get lots of examples in the fathers of regard, you know, pressing their people to pay attention to how they treat their slaves. But that's not what Gregory is doing. Gregory is not saying treat your slaves. Well, that to be a master is already sinful, but then he's suggesting at least at this point in the sermon that God is their master. Therefore, you shouldn't, you can't own them. They belong to God and you belong to God with them. And of course, that's meant to evoke, he doesn't quote it, but that's meant to evoke what Paul says in Romans about who are you to judge another man's slave before their own master they stand or fall. Right? So then Gregory goes on. He, he quotes that line again. I got me slaves and slave girls. What do you mean? You condemn man to slavery when his nature is free and you legislate in competition with God, overturning his law for the human species. The one made on the specific terms that he should be the owner of the earth and appointed to government by the creator. Him you bring under the yoke of slavery as though defying and fighting against the divine decree. So Gregory then moves to saying, not only are you sinning by usurping God's place, you are subjugating people God has made to be co-regents with him to the role of slaves. Right? So he, this is an astounding vision of freedom, that each human being is made by God to be a co-regent. Each human being is made by God to rule and reign. 
And so for you to put them in a place of subjugation is sinful. You don't have to be terribly clever to see what this means for wives, what this means for for anyone you're working with or who's you know in your employee, as we might say, not just master slaves. You've forgotten the limits of your authority and that your rule is confined to control over things without reason. In other words, you have a responsibility for the unreasonable animals, the beasts, and so on. That's how Gregory's model works. For it says, let them, Genesis 1, let them rule over winged creatures and fishes and four-footed things and creeping things. Why do you go beyond what is subject to you and raise yourself up against the very species which is free, counting your own kind on a level with four-footed things and even footless things? In other words, now you're, you're bestializing, you're dehumanizing these slaves. You've subjected all things to man, declares the word through the prophecy. And in the text, it lists the things that are subject, cattle, oxen, and sheep. So it's a, it's a careful reading of Psalm 8, right? That when it says you've set all things under the foot of human beings, it doesn't list other human beings. It lists cattle, oxen, and sheep. Surely human beings have not been produced from your cattle. Surely cows have not conceived human stock. Irrational beasts are the only slaves of mankind. But to you, these things are of small account. And skip ahead a little bit. By dividing the human species in two with slavery and ownership or slavery and mastery, you have caused it to be enslaved to itself and to be the owner of itself. So again, he quotes the line, I got me slaves and slave girls. And now his question is, for what price? What did you find in existence worth as much as this human nature? What price did you put on rationality? How many obols did you reckon the equivalent of the likeness of God? How many staters did you get for selling the being shaped by God? God said, let us make man in our own image and likeness. If he is in the likeness of God and rules the whole earth, and this is true of, again, each human being, and has been granted authority over everything on earth from God, who is his buyer? Tell me, who is his seller? To God alone belongs this power. So like right up to this point in the sermon, the argument has been, you know, human beings are free. Each and every one is free, free to be a ruler with God, given free will and order to rule with God. And we are sinning by taking God's place when we rule over them. And we're bestializing them or dehumanizing them and ourselves when we do so. But now he makes another move, which is to say to God alone belongs this power or rather not even to God himself for his gracious gifts, as it were, are irrevocable. God would not, therefore, reduce the human race to slavery since he himself, when we had been enslaved to sin, spontaneously recalled us to freedom. But if God does not enslave what is free, who is he that sets his own power above God's? And that's, to me, that's, that's where you have to take this, right? Not that God is a master, therefore you should not be, right? So like the argument that you get you know, in, in so much of what will undergird colonialism. See this, for instance, in William Tyndall's obedience of a godly man or obedience of a Christian man. The idea that because God is a master, we can be. But the argument Gregory makes is not only God is a master, therefore you can't be. It's God is not a master, therefore you cannot be. Or another way of saying it is God's mastery is so different from anything you know as mastery. 
His coming as Lord destroys what you've known as mastery. It undoes not just slavery, it undoes mastery. It's not just setting the captive free. It's setting the captive free by setting the captors free from being captors. It's not just liberating slaves. It's bringing Pharaoh down. And, and again, this is, Mary's, this is Mary's song, isn't it? He sends the rich away empty. He brings the mighty down from their throne. So I, I think what we get in Gregory, and, and, and a, a, you know, 500 years later, maybe 600 years later, the church will start to talk against slavery as a matter of a little more broadly. The reason slavery is a sin is that it's a violation of the image of God in the human being. But Gregory's already said that, like long before it becomes a much more common way of speaking. Thankfully, I think most Christians now around the world would say that, but it's taken way too long for us to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, it should be noted, right? Gregory, he's saying this, preaching this in the fourth century. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And preaching it from Ecclesiastes, right? And it's it's a reminder to us that he's not reading Ecclesiastes as the story. He's pointing us to this is what happens to powerful people. And this, I mean, I, I don't mean this, you know, we, we throw that phrase around all the time, like speaking truth to power. And like any cliche, it, it does more harm than good. I really do think that we have to ask ourselves and we should, those of us who are preachers and teachers should ask ourselves this every time we speak for the people who have, who according to the flesh are in positions of power. How are they going to hear what I'm saying? How are they likely to hear what I'm saying? Is what I'm saying going to underwrite or secure their status according to the flesh? So like go back to Colossians. What Paul is doing there, if if that reading is right that we talked about last time, that he's starting with, you have to look to Christ, you have to strip off the old, you have to put to death all that belongs to the order of the earth. You have to move toward the renewal and let the renewal happen in you. You have to pray one prayer. Well, ask yourself, if that if that's right, in that room when Paul had masters as well as slaves and his audience, and he had people of wealth and power as well as people who were poor and powerless, where do you who do you think felt the, the pressure toward repentance? Think about what James says outright about showing favoritism to the rich who are the ones who are the cause of your suffering. Paul will say to the Corinthians, not many of you are wise and powerful according to this world. And you know why? Because the message the apostles were preaching was a challenge to those people. They weren't killed by mobs. They were executed by authorities. And they were executed by authorities because the message, and just like Jesus, because the message they were preaching was a challenge to the order of this world. It was an apocalyptic challenge to the order of this world. And our preaching has to be too. Now, I don't mean that we should be partisan. I don't mean there's a way of framing all of that that turns just into some kind of progressive critique of Republican politics. And Dear God, no, that's not what I'm talking about. But there is a way 
of hearing and speaking the gospel that does unsettle all of us who are privileged, does call those of us who are in positions of power toward a reckoning with the humility of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And that, that has to come through. That has to come through. It reminds me of a conversation we had where this is one of the, you said this to me quickly and it's one of the most formative moments where we were talking about the temptation where Satan says to Jesus, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. And the, the endless amount of sermons we've all heard about how like Jesus wanted those kingdoms and Satan had them and, you know, that, that paradigm. And then you mentioned, I, th I think you said it this way. The sleight of hand wasn't worship me and I'll give you what is yours. The sleight of hand was that Jesus never wanted those kingdoms as they were. He wanted to rescue us from those kingdoms. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rescue us from those kingdoms. And I feel like that's the sleight of hand that we, that we fall into that you were saying when I asked my original question is that like, we fall back into these categories of hierarchy thinking that we can just keep, we can do them more in a more moral way. Yeah, exactly. That we, yeah, we all want the kingdoms of this earth and their glory, but we just have to get it the right way. Right. Right? So like the, we, we, we want to be exalted, but the way that we get to exaltation is to humble ourselves. Right. So we just want to make sure we use the appropriate means to get the ends. Everybody wants everybody wants. But yeah, Jesus, this is one of the reasons that I would say the temptations were not difficult for Jesus to overcome. I think the pain in Jesus life, what was difficult for him was to see what sin was, you know, he see them, he sees them as sheep without shepherds. Yeah. Their little faith is hard for him. The, the, the weakness of their faith. They're, they're, the ways in which they're intimidated by death when he's weeping at the tomb of Lazarus. And of course, in Gethsemane, you know, there's deep anguish about the death that he's facing. But I don't think the temptations were, I don't think he was sweating all that. I think it's like, like, uh, God, I don't have any interest in that. Like he didn't, the kingdoms of this world are an illusion and he knows it. They're, they're not the kingdom. The peoples of the world, he loves as his own. But the glories of this world have no pull on him. That, and I think that's, if it does have pull on us, yeah, then we absolutely will will fall for that temptation every time. There's in a sense where all that sin ever offers us is illusion yep. and uh, you know think like paul has brought this into the debate earlier in colossians in in 215 hasn't he that ultimately what you get one of the things you get within the crucifixion is that public spectacle uh, but but the public spectacle of how how disarmed sin and evil actually is in the presence of Jesus, which which I think speaks to this narrative that, that you're that you're threading for us, Chris. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
Well, as we start to wrap up, I think there are two two things I want to I want to name, and you guys, anything else you want to get to? I, I think we should go back to Matthew twenty, and I, I referenced it right at the very beginning. Jesus saying how it must not be among us. So I think I think we should definitely return to that and underscore the way of life Jesus insisted we all learn and and explore a little bit of what that does and doesn't mean. So if you if you've got it there, Brewer, maybe you can read it for us or I one of us can grab it. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling it up here. What did you say, Matthew 20? 25. I have it here if you want me to just yeah, jump go in for with it. it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Such an astounding passage. I mean, it's almost impossible for us to take seriously what he says. I did not come to be served. Like you, you think about how often in, in our worlds, our circles, our forums, we say that we're called to serve God, that we want to serve God. And yes, we do, precisely because our God is the God who serves us. I want to serve God because that's the character of the God who's serving me. I I don't want to serve God because that's going to curry favor with someone who has power to make my life better. I, I do think there's, I don't want to reduce anything to this, but I do think one of the reasons we are drawn to the model of mastery slavery is that we know how to use our powerlessness as well as to use power. And we've learned, all of us learned just by learning to survive, how to play up our powerlessness to gain the favor, the approval, the protection of people who are powerful. I mean, we've all been in relationships of of every kind, like intimate relationships, friendships, as well as work relationships, church relationships, where the dynamic is I play the role of the weaker one and play up the strength of the person who's in authority over me so that I benefit from their protection, from their gifts, from all kinds of ways in which that can become diseased. Right. And, it's actually easier to use powerlessness than it is to use power. And this goes back to Bill, what I was saying to you earlier. I don't think it's that we all want power. We do, we do, but it's so complicated and convoluted because we also know how to use powerlessness. So when Jesus is saying here, I'm among you not to be served, but to serve, man, that's hard for us to take seriously. It's so hard for us to think seriously. What else stands out to you guys about the passage? I don't want to just keep going on and on about it. I I mean, I have plenty to say, but I don't want to dominate the conversation in a text about not dominating. 
<laughs> I think it's interesting going back to the questions we asked at the beginning about misunderstanding. I think it's interesting how the 10 mishear what Jesus said and get mad. So Jesus, yes. Jesus never says, yes, you'll sit at my right hand and my left hand, but they hear it that way. That's right. They hear it that way. And I, I feel like, you know, um, a common phrase, a, a pop culture phrase for this is like hearing through your triggers or, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I thought that when, when we were just reading it out loud, that, that really actually stood out to me about how, you know, Jesus says to them, but this is for my father to grant. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Yeah. So it was interesting that they, they heard it. They, they didn't actually hear what Jesus said. Jesus denied their request. And they hear it as if they were just promoted. Or at least that's the way I'm reading it. Well, the other the other 10, I mean, what's interesting is Matthew doesn't tell us how the two hear it. Yeah. He tells us how the 10 hear it. And I think that's that's not an accident, right? That we're we're not given any insight into what happens in the heart of the two. We're allowed to see what happens in the heart of the 10. And this is, this often happens in the gospels where it's the, you know, think of the end of the gospel of John where Peter asked Jesus, what's going to happen to him? The beloved disciple. And Jesus says, what is that to you? If I, if it's my will for him to not to die. And then of course the gospels notes, and this is how the rumor started <laughs> that he would not see death. Right. So like this, the gospels are so keenly attentive to misapprehension on the part of the disciples. It keeps the, the gospels keep telling us that the apostles just keep misunderstanding over and over and over again for, for good reason, because it knows what we're going to do. The gospels know what we're going to do. It's clear that Jesus is already upending the power structures by the fact that these two are like, the only way that we're going to get this is if we have our mom go to him because he, <laughs> he listens to women very differently than anybody else that we've met so far. That's a great point, Bill. That's a, I've never thought about that before. They're like, seeing how close he is to his own mom, maybe our mom can. She's the one who can get him to say yes to our mom. He won't say yes to two men, but he might. He might say yes <laughs> if our mom asks. Oh, that's a great point. And then, of course, ironically, you then get when you actually <laughs> when you actually do get Jesus with one at his right and one at his left. <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. it's it, it's 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 a kind of thief on the edge and a repentant, or rather, a, a a rebel on the edge and a repentant rebel. And the women are still there. <laughs> so, so, so not one of the 12 actually make it to that point properly. You know, the, the, well, depending on how you build it, but you hear what I'm, you're I'm scratching at. There's, there's a beautiful little echo of that, of that women, uh, yeah. both carrying influence and being present in all of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's one thing I think worth pointing out here. Jesus does not simply flatten greatness into service. Like he doesn't simply say, you know, when they ask, can we sit at your right and left hand? He doesn't simply say, well, it's a round table or (laughs) no one sits at my right and left hand. Or when, when he talks about greatness and service, he doesn't say there is no way to be great. He doesn't say there is no way to exercise authority or there is no way Mm. to be a ruler. 
He just says, you cannot do it in this way. Right. There is exercise of authority, but it doesn't look like that. There is prominence and greatness, but it doesn't look like that. There is a, and he's come to serve. He's come to serve. And he, one of the ways he's served us, I mean, to connect this to Ephesians, he's ascended and has given gifts and he's given gifts of different authorities, authorities who exercise authority in different ways. He is not simply, again, flattening us into some kind of um, barren economy of equality. There so, is there is real difference here. So, yeah. So just to be clear, Bishop, this is kind of your offering of a defense of hierarchy. I, I just want to make sure I'm tracking, right? <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Bishop. But. I'm Chris all the way up until I make this point, right? And now, oh, God of mercy. <laughs> yes, this is my defense of hierarchy. I do think there is a way in which difference and differentials, power differentials, are graced. Right. I, I, de- I absolutely think that scripture is calling for that. But I that justice does not lie in the removal of authority, but in its Christ-like embodiment. Jesus hmm. does not say, I'm not Lord. It's I'm Lord as the one who serves. Yeah, that's a super helpful distinction. And I, I think the, you know, if we, if we think architecturally, there's a way in which load-bearing structures are essential to creating the space for us together, for us to share meals, for us to share the meal. And that holds true for human communities holds true for the church. I I absolutely think that, and this goes back to the point I was making earlier, Bill, with it's far easier to wield powerlessness than it is to exercise power at all. And it's incredibly hard to exercise power well, life-givingly, in ways that are truly responsible and faithful. And there's no way to do that without incredible humility. This is the story of Moses. I mean, Moses is absolutely an authoritative figure. And how do we know his authority? Because we know it as this meekness in which he is enacting his call to be responsible for Israel, even though he does not feel adequate to it. I mean, you, you think about how we meet. I mean, Moses flees into the desert, right? His heart is stirred, but he doesn't know how to fulfill what he wants for his people. He kills the Egyptian and is rejected because of it. Afraid for his life, he flees. He ends up in the desert. When he has that confrontation with God, his first thought is, I, I'm, I can't do this. I can't do this. And all the way through the story, he keeps telling, I mean, think about numbers. He tells God outright, like, I didn't give birth to this people. You're their mom, not me. Like, you nurse them. I can't do this. And it's that humility that is expressed in both feeling inadequate and yet taking responsibility to do the work anyway that singles him out as the meekest man who's ever lived. And this this shows up, I think, 
throughout, you know, all the stories of the saints through, through many, many stories of the saints in which they, they have a kind of authority that's rooted in the humility that accepts responsibility in spite of their own sense of inadequacy. And somehow we have to be able to say all of that, right? And that without, without authority, without load bearing structure, there is no room. There is life becomes impossible. And I, I now that being said, I'll add one more note and then you can respond accordingly because I mean, it is funny for me as Bishop to be talking about this, but I, I mean it kind of as sincerely as I know how, like there's, there's nothing more humbling, truly humbling than taking responsibility for other people, knowing that you're going to fail them in all kinds of ways and that there's no way you won't. I mean, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, like there is just no way to do it. There's just no way to do it without failing in all kinds of ways and to do it anyway, knowing that the easier thing to do would be to deflect that responsibility. I mean, that, I, I think that's what we suffer from more than anything else. As I do, I know it's, it is absolutely true that there are a lot of egomaniacs who are causing trouble for our churches. Definitely. There's a reason that there's so much focus on narcissism in the church that's well earned. Right. So don't misunderstand me. Like we, we do have personality cults and we do have people who are driven by their own ego needs into becoming the center of attention. I absolutely think that's a problem. I just don't think that's a problem. It's as serious a problem as the problem of people who are afraid to step into their calling because of how, where they are of their own inadequacy. And I think our churches suffer far more mm-hmm. from people who are, thinking they're being humble when really they're just afraid of their own frailty and, and don't know how to enact the authority God has given them that the church needs them to fulfill in order to, in order to be the space that God is making in the world to be a temple of the spirit. So I don't know how we got here exactly, but so so which, so, okay, obviously it has to be said. I think, I think, in a lot of ways, Brad Jersak's book out of the embers speaks to what you're saying right now in a lot of ways where it's like, you can't just, you're not, you're not de-institutionalizing the world. Right. So there's going to be like the, the, the boss of the company has to have some sort of authority. You know, if you're, if you're pastoring a church, there is an element of authority there and you're talking about a reconfiguring and a healing of the way that authority functions. And I think, you know, depending on what everybody believes, different things that can go through a lot of the, authorities that we have around us, our politicians, our president, police officers, you know, people like that. But which, which institutions of authority, which hierarchies are actually dissolved? So like, if you look at the Colossians text, like the, the children obeying parents one, I think conventional wisdom or obvious wisdom would say like, there has to be some hierarchy there. There has to be some sort of authority structure there with children and parents does the husband and the wife one, is it just like the child parent one? Does the master slave one like, so which, which hierarchy, how do we, 
and I don't I don't want to like sound like I don't want to get myself canceled by asking questions the same way, but like some of them are obvious, like the master slave one dissolved. Like that that hierarchy has to be dissolved completely. Like that can't exist. Which ones need to be healed and which ones just dissolve entirely? Does that have to go back to what you read about Gregory? Like there are just certain hierarchies that actually mar the image of God no matter how you pull them yes. out. And those, right. those need to be dissolved entirely where other ones can exist in a way where the image of God, if the hierarchy is handled well, can actually bring about the image of God in somebody else in a healthy way, like uh, parents and children. Yes. Yeah. And absolutely. And like, you know, in, in, a, in the liturgical setting, when you have clergy and laity, the clergy are, they belong to the laity. The clergy are serving the laity in the, in the laity's performance of the work of God, right? We, you don't have bishops, priests, and deacons, liturgically speaking, to do things on behalf of people. They're, they're taking the lead in service of the people. It's, it's a bit like a dancing instructor or learning to dance. You know, if my wife and I are going to, and we're not, as far as I know, but if we're going to, for our upcoming 25th anniversary, let's say we want to go on a trip and we want to learn to dance. Like for me to let the dancing instructor have the first place, like that's how it should be. It has to be that way for me to learn. Right. And then once we're dancing, there'll be a ways and way in which Julie has to be able to take the lead in the dance, or I have to be able to take the lead in the dance for the dance to happen. So like the taking first place in that sense is essential in order for things to happen in time and space beautifully and gracefully. So when the person says, you know, your, your marriage has to come before, has to take first place above your children. Like if you're being honest, you know, you know that there's something good that they're trying to say. Right. And this is the good they're trying to name that there are under certain circumstances in certain ways in which I just have to have time with my wife and I, my kids just have to adjust around that. It's good for their growth. And it's good for our our marriage, right? So as people who have needs and are pulled in every direction by different responsibilities, we have to learn to dance. And we have to say, under these circumstances, Lux, or under these circumstances, Sophia, under these circumstances, Emery, you're going to have to just wait because i got to have this conversation with your mom or whatever, right? Like that, those, Like that's just how life works for us because of time and space and finitude and not even get into the brokenness of the world. I think it will help if there's a, in, in Pentecostal theology, traditionally, there's something called the fivefold gospel that talks about Jesus as savior, sanctifier, spirit baptizer, healer, and coming King. So Jesus is my savior, sanctifier, spirit baptizer, healer, and coming King. I think if we kind of can use that as a conceptual framework, we can say that the coming of Christ as our, savior looks like one of those three things like when christ our savior comes to rule as his rule is coming into our lives it is either healing something that's gone wrong it's purging something that has become diseased right so it's it's healing something that's good but broken or it's purging something cancerous or or diseased out of us it's burning away the dross and or it is bringing to full flourishing something that is good, 
So I think there are things that are good that just need to be matured and brought to flourishing. There are things that are good, but they're broken and they need to be healed and then brought to flourishing. And then there are things that are good, but they've been diseased by all kinds of bad things. And that bad has to be stripped away, burned away in order for that good to come to healing and therefore to flourishing. Sure. I think authority is like that. There are some ways in which authority is, is right and good and all that it needs is to mature. And then there's some ways in which authority is good, but it's been broken by this or that, and it needs healing. And often what needs healing is not the authority structure or the person in authority, but me as someone responding to the person in authority. I'm reacting not to them, but to all the people who've wronged me. So my trauma from bad leaders, bad teachers, poor shepherds, is now causing me to react to the good shepherd or to a wise teacher. And I need healing in order to follow well in order to respond, right? So if, and then there are things that are absolutely wrong that need to be purged, that need to be burned away. And I think we're always trying to discern in particular circumstances, what needs to happen here, what needs to happen here. And I, I do think it's, it should be obvious to us that slavery needs to be done away with, not practice well. But parenting needs to be practiced well, not done away with. But, but a lot of things aren't that clear. And we have to be more discerning about it. I mean, we need to be discerning even about those things. But it takes when you're talking about authority within the church, I think that's especially, we have to be especially careful there. But I, I don't think... You know, if we go back to, if we shift away from talking about the church and the home to talking about the arts, like if, if you, if we're going to build a cathedral or if we're going to make a movie or if we're going to plan, you know, a, a bridge for a city that's, you know, been destroyed by a flood, like we need people with authority to get that work done. Like if, if we've, if we're coming into a city that, you know, let's say we're in, in Hawaii in the aftermath of the fires, or we're in Florida in the aftermath of this latest hurricane, the people who are responsible for rebuilding there precisely for the sake of everyone involved, there need to be people who are answerable for that work, who take a, a, take a first place in serving the community. That's obvious to us. And we see that, you know, um, if you've got like a favorite book that's being made into a movie and you hear that there's no director, there's just a bunch of actors and a script, but there's no director making the movie. That's not comforting to you. Like you don't think, Oh, it's going to be a great film. Right. Like we, we understand that people taking responsibility is essential to beauty and grace becoming possible in the world. My point is there is a way to do that. That is quote unquote hierarchical. Right? It's, it's a holy thing taking first place, coming first. That's actually life-giving to everything else and to everyone else. It's not dominating. So yes to hierarchy, no to domination. And what I've learned from my own experience is that it's when you strip away those life-giving structures that victimization and domination take on more hidden guises. It's harder to confront abuse when you've stripped the structure down 
and everybody supposedly is equal, but in fact is not. Right. And if children who are not parented are not in any way protected from the brokenness of this world and parents, you know, and I'm one of those like who are afraid to parent, we're not afraid to parent because we are doing right by our kids. We're afraid to parent because we don't want to be people who see ourselves of not having been good parents. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more selfish than that to put my image of myself as a parent above what my kid actually needs. I mean, that's, and that, I mean, this, we're getting really close to home for stuff that I've had to work on for years and years. I mean, this is, you know, very tender for me, but it's, and it, it was freeing in part because my father kept saying to me and, and other mentors in my life saying to me, no, 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 you are supposed to be a father and don't let your fear of not being a good one, keep you from doing what your kids need you to do. When we, uh, <clears throat> just a couple things. It reminds me of what, um, well, let me say this first. There's, there is a point, I think when things are like sort of healthy, where you can see, uh, a pursuit of the good life in people where they're pursuing like tangible things that are like first world goods. And like, I, I need to have this kind of house. I need to live in this kind of area. And when things are relatively healthy, the the misguidedness, you can see it in like the pursuit of something good. I think hmm. recently I've noticed in, in my discernment here in Beacon, New York, that kind of has shifted away from like people trying to pursue something tangibly other than what they have, as opposed to what you just said, Chris, it seems like where people, when people are being misguided, it's because they're desperately trying to prevent a worse. They're trying to not live a nightmare that they're trying to avoid. That's right. That That's makes right. sense. So they're, they're parenting and living and spending and worshiping and making decisions about their time and their money and their uh, abilities they're doing it to avoid a nightmare. That's right. And it almost is like it's causing the same it's causing the same issues as the more healthy version of that which would be pursuing a good life, right? As opposed to protecting against a nightmare. It's it's getting us in the same place, but I think this one's a little harder to discern. It is a little harder to discern and it's the one we're we're living with. I mean, it's like, let me, let me give a particular example of this that I think may help because we're, we're in such choppy waters here and I want to be careful. I, I remember one of the things I, I tried to be committed to as a parent from the jump is including my kids in as much as I could of the decision-making processes, like just to talk to them essentially like they were adults. And what I've seen over the years, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I would love for my kids actually to speak to this. I wonder what their experience, I'd love for them to speak to it now. And I'd love for them to speak to it 30 years from now. Hmm. And they will, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm not, no doubt that they will. I hope that I have the kind of relationship with them in which they can say it to me. But I think I made a, with all the best intentions, I made the enormous mistake of talking to them 
in ways that put burdens on them. I thought I was including them so they would know I was open. I would listen. But what I actually did, at least in part, and I think I did communicate that. I think my kids know I listened to them. But I also put responsibilities on them that hit different kids different ways and created anxieties that were not theirs to bear. Made them think about things and feel things that they didn't need to think about and feel. That were burdensome to them. So it was my intention was I want to talk to them, not just make decisions and pull them along into life behind me. Like they're just extensions of my will. And I think that was right of me. I want to treat them like they're their own people, but I, in the process ended up creating anxiety and difficulty for them. I didn't protect them. What I was doing was fulfilling an image I had in my head of what I should be as a father, not actually caring for them. Mm. Now, I mean, I'm not beating myself up about it. I regret it. I've tried to do what I can to make that right, to learn from it. So, I I mean, we're, and we're going to make mistakes as parents, but the, the point bill is, I think that the model of the parent, not taking the child seriously and oppressing them in that way, we see the damage that does. And we know what those consequences are. What we're living right now is the consequences of parents who do not parent out of fear of what they're going to do wrong. Right. Hmm. And we don't know what the consequences of that are going to be for a generation of people. Right. And I think we just have to be attentive to that. Like I would rather be making these mistakes than other ones. Right. So I'm not at all saying let's just revert to some older model. Like that, like it used to be just right. And we have to find a way to get back to that. But we do have to recognize that whichever way we approach this, it's fraught. And it presents different challenges. And our kids are are not going to be protected from the brokenness of the world. That is not going to happen. There is nothing we can do that isn't going to yield them tasting the bitterness of life. So we have to be ready to adjust around that, right? And, you know, we're talking about parenting here, but the same applies to ministry. The same applies to any of our responsibility in the world. So there's there's a verse that has been kind of rattling around in my head this whole conversation. And every time the conversation moves, I think, oh, is this a time to ask about this verse? And and I figured it would go away, but it keeps coming back. Um and and that's that's in Hebrews twelve too, right? Where you get this this yeah. statement about Jesus that the joy that's set before him to endure the cross and to disregard its shame and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Right. So so you have this power dynamic going on in this here, that the net result is Jesus will will hold authority. But every time you were talking about you know this question of power, Chris, yeah. and then actually this failure to take power sometimes but doing a bigger damage, I find myself thinking about how is it power that we're afraid of? And at some level, obviously, no, because there's times where the power is offered and we don't take it. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's shame that's actually driving so much of this, that, mm-hmm. that I don't want to be mm-hmm. perceived in yes. particular ways. 
And mm-hmm. if I have power, I don't want to, I don't want to get, you know, Bill, you alluded to it. We all say it regularly in parlance these days. I don't want to get canceled, right? I don't want to do things badly. So maybe it's better to do nothing than do it badly. There's this, you know, you've got Jesus saying to his disciples in Matthew 20, he doesn't say to them, no, you can't sit at my right and my left. He says to them, are you able to drink the cup that you're asking that's, for? That's right. right? That's right. Uh, which is a fascinating response. You know, are you able to do what you're asking for? Do you really want this? Right. Mm-hmm. And then in Hebrews, we get this statement of ultimately what it requires for Jesus to take the power which is offered to him is for him to disregard shame. Uh, mm. And 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 I kind of wondered about I was I've been thinking about this through this whole conversation and and, and then as you started to talk about parenting, I, I I thought about the kind of whole cult of Instagram parenting and how so much of what we're trying to do is just not look like bad parents. Yes, it's not actually power we're str- struggling with; it's shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and there we have again this cruciform model of, of it in Hebrews chapter twelve too. I mean. Am I tracking the conversation we've oh, just absolutely. had? That's, or... exactly, that's exactly it. And I think it's a, actually a good place to settle because one, it's about Jesus and the cross. But I, what I, what I think, what I love David about you calling our attention back to Hebrews 12, two in particular is that Jesus despises the shame, but he doesn't let fear of being ashamed yeah. keep him from being obedient. You know, so there's the way the way that I read that passage, at least, is that he endures the cross. And we often in our theologies of the cross, we often so emphasize Jesus love for us that we forget what he's enduring because of that. He's not enduring the father. He's not enduring us. But he is enduring the shame of his life ending this way. He is enduring the shame in, in ways that I, I just like, I don't think we can imagine. I know we cannot imagine what life was like for Jesus. But what it is for him to die a death like this. I mean, we see this in Gethsemane. I mentioned this earlier. Like when we get the gospel accounts of the temptations, we do not get any hint that Jesus is having a hard time resisting the temptations. He's hungry, right? He needs the comfort of the angels because his body is weakened, but he's not sweating it. It seems to me, but in Gethsemane, he is wrecked, right? He is absolutely sweating blood, not just sweating. And the cross, I I don't think we reckon enough with, the humiliation of that event for him. Like what is happening to him being, because so much of what we think of as humiliation has to do with our false images of ourselves. And like, we don't have an experience of pure humiliation. We can't. He did. Like that is pure, so to speak, it's humiliation stripped of anything good. And he endures it. He despises it, but he endures it. And he endures it because it's the thing that has to be done. The cup cannot pass. He has to drink it. And he drinks it without pretending that it's not shameful. Without pretending that, oh, it's worth it because X, Y, or Z. He hates enduring it, but he does endure it. 
And I think that's the health of soul we need, that we have to hate the things that should be hated, but not let our fear of those and our fear of shame keep us from doing what we have to do. Because we will do things that are embarrassing. We will do things that leave us exposed. We will do things, unlike Jesus, we will get it wrong and we'll experience the consequences of that. And like Jesus, we will be judged to have been wrong when we're not. Both of those things are going to happen by our kids, by the people we pastor, by our friends, by our spouses. Like we ha- And we have to trust ourselves to God in the midst of that. And I think what you both are touching on is we, right now, at least in, in the world that I know, man, there are so many people. And, and I don't think it's an accident that you named it as an Instagram culture because it has to do with the the image we're projecting of ourselves like quite literally the pictures we're putting of ourselves online mm-hmm. right the like so much of our life is virtual like it's the representation the avatar of our lives that mm-hmm. we're protecting that more than we are being true to the people that are near us and, you know, cancellation, as we all know, like is more about what's happening to your image than it is what's happening to you. Yeah. And maybe this gets us at this. This may be the pastoral issue of our generation is we're all managing images mm-hmm. rather than living our lives. And we, we I mean, we have to get delivered from that. Right? But we absolutely have to be delivered from that. And maybe managing the image, not just that other parents have of me, but that my kids have of me. And and I have of myself. I completely agree, Bill. I think think there's a kind of superficial example of I want other people to see me as a good parent. But more to the heart of it is I want my kids to believe I'm a good parent. I want to be able to go to sleep at night feeling like I was a good parent. And those kinds of concerns even though I think they're rooted in very good motives, they can so easily twist back on us so that we're, we're kept from actually just being there for our kids in a way that is life giving. And again, the same thing with people we're pastoring the same thing with people we're anyone we're serving, like we're in which we're, we're so afraid of what we're going to do wrong with power that we just don't take responsibility. Hmm. And to your point, David, out of a, out of a sense of shame. So in some crazy way, can you draw some sort of like metaphor to, where it says like masters treat your slaves justly. If you make that a metaphor to the image of myself that I'm trying to master, is there almost an undoing there where, where the spirit, where the word of Jesus through that to, to this part is saying, like, treat, treat the image that you have of yourself justly and fairly. Don't, don't do that to yourself. Yes. Be kinder to yourself. Release Absolutely. yourself from that sort of bondage. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that's one way of reading Romans 12 with, you know, have a sober estimate of yourself. Like you, you need to know, like What's really happening here? Like, one, I had I had kind of a couple of moments as a parent that were absolutely liberating for me, and I, I I remember both of the breakthroughs. One of them was recognizing that 
as and it actually came from listening to Toni Morrison, believe it or not, where she said that the most important thing is when your kid walks in the room, they see your eyes light up. Mm. Like if they if that happens, if when your child walks into the room, your eyes light up, everything else will be all right. Like whatever mistakes you make, they will eventually be okay because they've got that. And what I told Julie, in, like in the aftermath of that, was whatever mistakes we make as a parent, what our kids will know is that they matter more to us than anybody else in the world does and that we're going to be there for them. Even while we're making mistakes, we're going to keep showing up and they're going to know that because we're going to do it. <laughs> like it's not going to be a matter of I hope they see it. We're just going to keep showing up, making mistake after mistake after mistake. And I absolutely believe that that will hold because it's held in my life. My parents made mistakes, but their eyes lit up when I walked in the room and they still do. Mm. And they show up in my life when I need them. So with all the mistakes my parents made that they would own, I mean, I'm here for them, right? I'm absolutely here for them. That may be one of the most amazing things you could say to somebody, whether you're pastoring a church or it's your children. I'm going to be there for you. I'm, I promise to be there with you through all of your mistakes. But more than that, I'm going to be there with you through all of mine. Through my mistakes. That's exactly that, right. I'll keep showing up. That can hit. Absolutely. I'll keep showing up. That hit. And I mean, yeah. And, and, and now, I mean, to come back to the joke Brewer made and then left, which is, my gosh. What Brewer does. You imagine? <laughs> He's like... <laughs> But what he was saying about, you know, my like me stepping in as bishop. I mean, this is I couldn't have done this until that other shoe dropped for me. Mm. Until I recognized that I can still be a good parent and make just incredible <laughs> mistakes because I just keep showing up. I can take I, I can do this. I can do this, too, for the same reason. And, and in the same spirit. So I, I'm, yeah, David, I'll give you the last word. I, I can't help but think of parents that are listening to this, uh, pastors that are listening to this, you know, masters in any possible conceivable way that we might call someone a master you know, that Jesus question, can you drink this cup? And then that response, yes, you can, if you realize that you can drink it with all your mistakes and just keep showing up. I mean, mm. that is that is a word, <laughs> Chris. Absolutely. That is a word. And I, mean, I almost yeah. want to leave that as a blessing for people. Oh, know? man, that's it, David. That's just it. I just I just heard what you're saying, right? We hear Jesus saying, can you drink this cup? And we think the answer is no, I can't. That's what I'm supposed to learn. And therefore mm. I should shut up. <laughs> but he's saying, can you drink this cup? Because you can. Yeah. But you're going to have to. You absolutely can drink it. But it is, it's, it's going to be a bitter, it's going to be bitter at first. Mm. It'll be sweet in the stomach, but bitter in the mouth, unlike the book. Yeah. Yeah. Pray for us, yeah. Father David. We'll stop right there. Mm. Father God, this cup 
in whatever form it takes in our lives is presented before us and help us to drink it, to help us to have through your spirit each day what it takes to take up this cup that is given to us and drink it, to despise the fear of shame, to to step away from all of the list of reasons that we might not want to take that cup. But help us to see what is placed before us. And perhaps, like Jesus say, not my will, but yours be done, to take up those responsibilities given to us, knowing we will do them imperfectly, but trusting that you are with us in all of that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Love you guys.